telling you this morning, the worship team was practicing, and I went back the hallway to join the prayer that we have in the choir room back there. And Brandy started playing the one song, and I just felt the Holy Spirit just like hit me from behind. I was like, whoa. And then I opened the door to the prayer room, and I felt the Holy Spirit just smack me in the front. And it was just like, wow, this is amazing. Amazing. The presence of God is so good. So good. So before we jump into the sermon, I just want to take a few moments on some things going on here. I want to thank everybody for their faithful giving. So Tom presented some of those needs this morning, and I just want to thank everyone for their faithfulness to this house. I know when we talk about things like a roof and a parking lot, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but I just want to encourage everyone, your faithful giving is enabling this house to continue to move forward, to continue to change people's lives that we're seeing week after week after week, to reach out into the community. I said in the board meeting, whenever the last time it was that we met, that greater days are coming And there's going to be a day where we're sitting in that meeting and we are just dreaming about how we can use all of the resources God has given us to impact this community and this world for him. So we are trending in a really amazing direction now. I thank you for your faithfulness. God has even greater things yet for us. It's going to be amazing. Um, One other thing then, or two other things, let me kind of hit. Next week, we are having a membership course after service. So if you are here, you are part of the house, and you are not a member, I would encourage you after the service next week to check out the membership course. If you come to the course, it's not saying that you absolutely have to become a member, but you'll get a lot of amazing information. Pastor Jeff is going to help lead that up. I've seen the material he is using. It's awesome. We would just encourage you to check it out. Now, some people may say, well, why become a member? And my response to that is, why not? Right? If you are here, you are part of this house, you are born again, and Bethel is your home, why not become a member? Check it out, see what it's all about. It's an amazing thing, it's good. And then Light the Night, I know we announced it, but I want to just plug this week after week. You'll hear me talk about this now until the time we have it, Friday, October 27th. That is one of my favorite nights of the entire year. I circle that night, I put exclamation points on that night. Because where else and what else can you do where you have like five and 600 people who would never set foot into a church parking lot show up at your church for you to minister to them? So I just want to encourage everybody. We have the things out there. We need some donations. It looks like there's a boys and a girls, a man and a woman sort of competition out there. Men, don't make me stand up here and have to announce that the women beat us. Because I will give an update when this is all said and done. How embarrassing for me. Think of your poor pastor. How embarrassing for me to have to stand up here and say, men, the women out gave us. They're just more generous. So men, do your thing. Women, keep up with them, though. It's going to be good. So it's going to be an amazing night. I just encourage you. Let's support Crystal as she pulls that together and the team. It's going to be amazing. All right, now that I've blasted everyone with a whole ton of information, that serves as the perfect example that we live in a world of information overload. Does anybody feel like that sometimes? It is impossible to get away from it. We have the TV. We have computers. We have tablets. We have these things. I don't know if anybody still reads them called newspapers. Now, for all the young ones in here, that is literally pieces of paper that they print news on, and you read them, and your fingers get all dirty. The young ones in here are probably like, what is the point of that? We go through our day. We see billboards and signs. We have smartwatches, and of course, we have the ever-present cell phone interrupting our day seemingly every moment. Now, scientists have measured the amount of information, this is really wild, that enters the brain And they found that an average person living today processes as much as 74 gigabytes of information every single day. Now, you may be sitting here and you may be saying, what is 74 gigabytes? Is that a lot? What are you talking about? Let me put it in context for you. Only 500 years ago, 74 gigabytes of information would be what a highly educated person consumed in their entire lifetime. 
So only 500 years ago, their entire lifetime was consuming about as much information as every single one of us has fed into our brains every single day. Now, it's estimated that an average American in 2011 took in more than five times the amount of information every day as they did in 1986. And think of how much more that would be now because we have cell phones and tablets and everything else. So we are inundated with information every day. And not only are we inundated with information every day, we know that much of that information really isn't good news. Now, you've probably heard the famous tagline, if it bleeds, it leads. Everybody heard that? If it bleeds, it leads. It's a statement dating back to the 1890s that essentially means news stories involving violence, conflict, and death tend to be the news that is highlighted to people. We know that you rarely see any good news on the TV. Just watch the news at night and see how many good stories you hear compared to how many negative ones you hear. So in our day, it's not just the local gossip that we have to hear. It's not just the local news stories, but with the power of the internet and with global news, we are also inundated with information from around the entire world about all of the difficult things that are happening. And then to layer even more on top of this, because of the internet, almost anyone, regardless of whether they even have a clue what they are talking about, can spout off their opinion as if they are actual facts and as if they are an expert. Just a friendly reminder that just because someone has a podcast doesn't mean they have any clue what they're talking about. Just remember that. Just because they're on the internet doesn't mean they're actually an expert. They may actually be an idiot. Just putting it out there. And as, am I allowed to say idiot from the pulpit? I hope so, because I just said it again. So I think we're all right. So as if this all wasn't enough, day in and day out, if you're upset about that, talk to Pastor Kevin. He'll, he'll listen to that. Day in and day out, we still then go about our actual lives, and we so often see the brokenness of the people, the brokenness of the communities, the brokenness and sin all around us. We see dysfunction in our local community. We see dysfunction in our schools, maybe even in our families. Anybody have some crazy family members? In the face of all this, the question becomes, how should we respond? What should our response be to all of the brokenness of the world? So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and turn to Acts 17, and we'll see if we can answer this question today. Should also be up on the screens then. Acts 17. We're going to read verses 16 to 21. I'm reading from the New King James Version today. It says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And then he took and brought him to the Areopagus, I think I said that right, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So let me first set the context for these verses. In the verses that we read, Paul is on the second of three missionary journeys that the book of Acts records that he took. Now, over the course of Paul's ministry, it is believed that he would have traveled over 10,000 miles and would have established at least 14 different churches. And while 10,000 miles may not seem like a lot to people who have cars with comfy seats and air conditioning, the Apostle Paul would have traveled much of that distance by foot, in sandals, or he would have traveled much of it by sea, which is a very dangerous mode of transportation at that time. Just read the end of Acts. So in the verses that we read, Paul has arrived in the city of Athens, and without giving a full-blown history lesson... It was simply known as a city that was known for arts, for learning and education, for religion and philosophy. 
It was named after Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. And the apostle Paul arrives in the city and it states that as he traveled through the city, he noticed that it was given over to idols. Some translations say full of idols. The original wording there has a sense that it was completely given. It was utterly idolatrous. It was completely and wholly given to idol worship. So we aren't just talking about a few people, but we are talking about an entire city that was unreached with the good news of Jesus. An entire city that was steeped in the worship of idols and was unreached with the good news. An entire city that worshiped idols and had everything that came with it. Paul found himself smack dab in the middle of a demonic stronghold. And so then we look at the life of Paul and we say, well, how does Paul respond in the face of the sinfulness that he saw, in the face of the brokenness and the idolatry that he was in the midst of? It says that Paul's spirit was provoked inside of him. Now, other translations may say stirred, distressed, troubled, but he was provoked by this. But it didn't provoke him in a negative sense. It provoked him in a positive one. Because the Apostle Paul, in the face of all of these things, was provoked to action. He was provoked to take action. And in the Apostle Paul's response, we see how we should react when we look at our world, when we look at our community, and we see the brokenness and the sinfulness. What should our response be to the condition of the world to provoke us to take action? We should be provoked. We should be provoked to take action. Now, we'll return to that idea in just a little bit. But before we do, I believe we need to address a few mistaken ways that the people of God have at times responded. And it is possible for us to respond in the wrong way. As we see the sinfulness and the brokenness, it is possible that the people of God can respond in a way that is not helpful to the gospel. And while there are quite few, I believe there are three mistaken responses that are most prevalent in the modern church. And they are unbelief, anger, and escapism. And what I want to do today is I want to start by addressing each one of these things to make sure that we also aren't making the same mistake. And so we're going to start with unbelief this morning. See, the enemy desires to use the challenges of the world to drive God's people into a state of unbelief. It is one of the most powerful weapons in the enemy's arsenal. The fact of the matter is that the enemy cannot win in a battle against the church that holds both the power and the authority of Jesus. You may have seen that stupid picture online. Am I allowed to say stupid? I'm really pushing it today. Man, I'm going to be in so much trouble at the next board meeting. But sorry, this one just gets me so mad. That picture, see, just picture of Jesus and the devil arm wrestling that people put on Facebook. Please don't post that. Please don't post it. Jesus could go, and he would be gone forever, and he will go, and he will be gone forever someday. The fact of the matter is that a church that understands who they are in Christ and that we carry the authority of Jesus, and he said all authority in heaven and earth was given to him, which means we have access to it through his name, And as bearers of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the devil cannot stand against a people who truly understand who they are in Christ. Therefore, what's his best chance? His best chance is to have us not actually engage in the battle. And so his desire is that we would look at the world and the challenges of the world And that this would lead us to a place where it seems like the odds are simply insurmountable. That the challenges of the world would lead to a church that has this mentality of, what can we really do to make a difference? Man, do you see how bad it is? I'm I'm not sure that we can truly make a difference. He doesn't want us to believe that we can see things change. And the problem with that is if we don't believe, then the natural course of action is that we simply won't do much about it. The enemy wants the church to just throw in the towel, to lay down our arms, and he tries to use the tool of unbelief to get us to do so. Now, we've discussed this a bunch of times. We'll continue to discuss this. Belief is so vital because it forms the foundation for stepping out in faith. 
right? You guys should know this by now. We talked about belief. You have truth, and then you put belief in the truth, and then belief, and then faith is simply belief in action. It's when you step out in that belief that is founded on truth. And so the enemy wants to come against us and try to use unbelief because if we have unbelief, then we don't step out in faith. See, this is why Jesus was so strong when it came to dealing with unbelief. Have you ever noticed that? Matthew 17, 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation. That's Jesus speaking right there. That's, that would be very discouraging if he said that to you. But he's talking to his disciples. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. So the context for this verse is Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples bring a boy to Jesus that they prayed for. He was demon-possessed. They were unable to cast out the demon. They were unable to get the breakthrough for healing. And this was Jesus' response to the disciples, which at glance seems really, really harsh. Now, one quick aside. While Jesus rebuked the disciples in this instance for their unbelief, do not assume that any time we pray and do not get breakthrough that it's due to unbelief, okay? That's important to remember. I've had people devastated that came to me because somebody in the church said that person that you prayed for would have got healed if you just believed more, right? So we should not assume that in every instance where we don't get breakthrough that it's due to unbelief, okay? Now, in this particular instance, Jesus did recognize that there was unbelief in the disciples, and so he rebukes that unbelief in them. And this wasn't the only time where Jesus had to rebuke them pretty strongly for their unbelief. The question is, why was Jesus so strong in his reaction around unbelief? And the reason is because unbelief is not just a lack of belief, it's actually misplaced belief. It's putting belief in something other than God. It's allowing that thing, whatever it is, to have a higher position than Jesus and his ability to address that thing. See, we are called to believe. It's knowing and trusting that God is greater than anything we will ever face. It doesn't deny reality. It simply recognizes that God is superior. If you go to the doctor and you get a bad report from the doctor... Right? The response shouldn't be, oh, the doctor's lying and all of these things. The response should be, okay, but God is greater. God is greater, and he has the final word. Belief is not denying reality. It's simply recognizing that we have a greater reality in Christ. Amen. We are called to believe. It's knowing and trusting that God is greater than anything we will ever face. Anything. So as we look around at the sin of the world, the challenges of the world, when we look at our community and our unsaved loved ones, we are to remember that all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. We must not allow unbelief to enter in. We cannot have more faith in the darkness than we do in Christ's light. When Jesus went to raise Lazarus, he told Martha that if she would simply believe, she would see the glory of God. Bethel, if we will simply believe, we will see the glory of God. Amen. All right, the next one now. We must be careful when we look at the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world that we don't simply respond in anger. Now, this is an easy trap to fall into when you see so much of what is going on in this world. Now, I know there is a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. There is a difference so you say, what is the difference between those two? Well, righteous anger seeks restoration, whereas unrighteous anger seeks destruction. So there is a difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. An example of righteous anger is Jesus when he went to the temple. Remember that? He went and he cleared out the temple, and he was pretty angry about it. He cleared it out, but it was a righteous anger because he sought the restoration of what the temple was created for, specifically the Gentile court a place for them to come and worship. He was restoring the temple back to what it was supposed to be. It was a righteous anger. However, much of what we see in many Christians today is not coming from a place of restoration, but rather from a place of wrath and almost vengeance. 
this idea of, I got to be right. I have to prove you wrong. See, we are called to speak the truth in love and not just love to speak the truth. We can have truth and still be wrong if we speak it from the wrong place, if we speak it from a place of anger and vengeance and wrath or simply wanting to be right. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reason and you still end up being wrong. See, so much of what you see today and especially so much what you see posted on Facebook is motivated by anger. And it's not the type where I see much that's going to bring restoration to those situations. See, when we look at the world and we see all of this brokenness, it certainly may bring a feeling of anger. But my recommendation is that we shouldn't camp out there. Rather, we should move very quickly to a place of bringing restoration. See, that's the litmus test for whether or not you're feeling righteous anger. When you get angry, does it then turn you to say, what do I do to bring restoration to this? Or does it turn you to what do I do to just destroy this? What do I do to get back at this person? What snarky comment can I make to put them in their place? We have to be careful when we get angry. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So the Bible recognizes that we may get angry. We may look at the things of the world and we may get angry. It could be justified, it could be righteous, but it tells us two things. First, don't sin, and then second, get over it quickly. See, I once had someone come to me and they say, well, I'm allowed to be angry for an entire day because the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if you make me angry in the morning, I am legally allowed by Jesus to be angry for the rest of the day. I really don't think that's what it's saying. I really think it was just a euphemism saying, get over it quickly. Get over your anger quickly because anger in imperfect people can become a place where the enemy tries to get a foothold into your life. See, I want to encourage all of us that when we see what is happening in the world, and if it gets you angry, which it just might, in that place, go to the Father and ask him how you can move from anger to taking action. And taking action that will bring restoration and not destruction. James 1.20 tells us that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But if we move quickly from anger to action, we can work to bring the righteousness of God into those situations and into our world. So we got to be careful with our anger. And the last one I want to cover today is escapism. All right, Bethel, so I've already gotten myself in trouble twice today. I'm about to step on a landmine. You ready? Here's where I need you all to work with me and have open hearts and open minds because I may just challenge some thoughts and beliefs that we have had in our church in our day. Are you ready? What happens if the Lord doesn't return for a very, very, very long time? What happens if the Lord tarries for a long, long time. Now, some here might think I'm actually crazy to even suggest that. But if you study church history, you will see that many generations that have come before us were absolutely, positively convinced that the return of Christ was imminent. Even in our lifetime, let's just kind of trace through. Most of us were here with Y2K. Do you remember that? The change of the millennium where church after church was convinced that the return of Christ was imminent. You can go back, and a good amount of us were alive in the 1980s, which was the hotbed for rapture fever and the return of Christ. Hundreds of books were written that were written with the sole purpose of saying that Jesus was going to return during that decade. You can go back further, and there was World War I where the church was convinced that a war of such magnitude must be a sign of Christ's return. It was followed by World War II, where the church once again was absolutely convinced that the return of Christ was imminent in a war that had such a global impact. You can go back further in history and see all of these different events. You can study the Black Plague 
where the church's response to the black peg was, well, the return of Christ must be imminent. You can look at the year 1,500, and you can see that the church was convinced that the return of Jesus was imminent. And yet here we are today. See, all of that to say we are not unique in our generation as the people believing that his return is imminent. And every one of those generations pointed to the exact same verses and the exact same signs. They were all convinced that it was imminent. Now you say, what does this really matter? Where are we going with this? It's simply this. We must be cautious because when we look at our world and the challenges and it turns our attention only to Christ's return, rather than causing us to be provoked to take action, we will be short-sighted and we will sell out future generations because we don't plan for the future, which becomes their present. See, a church that doesn't expect to exist in 40 years doesn't really consider or plan for the future. A church that says we're not going to be here 20 years from now gives no thought to what 20 years from now looks like. And so what happens is we live very short-sighted. And then when that 20 years comes, instead of having a plan for what we should be doing to impact our world, we go, "Uh uh-oh, I guess we need to figure out what we're going to do now. See, if we are not careful, what will happen is that each generation will come and they will have to try and build from scratch instead of building upon what the previous generation has put in place and prepared for them. Right? It's been said that those who fail to plan, plan to fail. And I believe the church has failed future generations because we don't plan for the future and it leaves us short-sighted and always scrambling to figure out what is next. See, I can tell you this, as I pray over Bethel and I dream for this church, I'm certainly looking at the short term. What are we going to be doing these next couple of years to impact this community? And I believe it's going to be absolutely amazing. But I'm also asking God how we establish things that will impact this community 20, 30, and 40 years from now. And I'm praying for the wisdom from God that he will give us ideas on how we sustain what he wants to do here so that the next generation that comes after us doesn't have to start from scratch. See, we need to get this mentality in the church of every single generation starts from our ceiling and that becomes their floor. We have to learn. You say, why does the church never seem to be able to sustain revival? It's because every time revival shows up and the Lord starts moving, everybody's convinced Jesus is returning. Instead of saying, let's take what God is doing and let's shepherd that and steward that and walk in that and learn how we pass it to the next generation so that they can pass it to the next generation. And we see this sort of momentum built. Instead of us pushing the rock up the hill and then allowing the next generation to push it down, every generation starts from the bottom and has to push that thing up again. We need to plan for the future. See, here's the thing. If the Lord returns before then, awesome. We will throw a party in heaven knowing that we gave everything that we could on this earth. But if he doesn't and he tarries, then what we know is we were putting things into place so that that next generation doesn't have to start from scratch and they can continue the work of Christ in this community. See, when we look at the challenges of the world, the question is, Do we have a desire to simply escape them? Or do we have a desire burning inside of us to bring Jesus to them? We must be careful that we don't allow the problems of our world to make us turn our attention only up to the sky looking for Christ's return to the detriment of doing the work of God here on this earth. John 17, 15 to 18 says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. And so this is Jesus, and he is praying to the Father. And what does he pray? He prays, Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of this world. I'm praying that you would protect them from the evil one. 
Because even as you sent me, Father, I am now sending them out in the exact same way. And even as Jesus was sent to destroy the works of darkness, so we are being sent forth to destroy the works of darkness. See, the early church got it. I love the early church. Acts 4.29, this is a prayer of the disciples. They said, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So the disciples were arrested for preaching the gospel, and they were threatened and told not to preach it any longer. They were forbade from preaching it. And how do they respond? They pray for boldness to proclaim Jesus. In other words, they prayed for boldness to continue to do what they were just arrested for and were told not to do. And God answered that prayer, and it says that the Holy Spirit came and filled them, and it shook the place once again. They were sold out for Christ. They were not backing down from darkness. They weren't looking for escape. They were looking to battle the works of the enemy. The early church, they lived as dead men and women for Christ. And the good news is the world can't kill what is already dead. Come on, they lived as dead men and women for Christ. They said, we do not count our lives as nothing just to press forward with the gospel. They lived as dead men and women for Christ. All right, so I know I've probably challenged some thinking today. It's gotten really quiet in here during this part. Like you could drop a pin and people would hear it. It's okay. I like to challenge people's thinking sometimes. But now can I really challenge you? See, while some people pray for Christ's return, I can tell you I actually pray for the exact opposite. Because my prayer time and time again is not yet, Lord, not yet. It's not yet, Lord, not yet. See, when we pray for a rapture, we essentially are praying that the eternal fate of billions of people would be sealed. But I'm laying down and praying, not yet, Lord, not yet. Let me save just one more. Let me see another one come to Christ. Raise your church up to reach this world the way that you intended us to. Don't return yet, Lord. No, there's still work that the church is called to do. See, let me encourage all of us today. We don't know the day or hour of Christ's return, and we don't need to try to figure it out. We don't need to be bothered with it in any sort of way. Rather, we need to be about our Father's business and making an impact for his kingdom to just go forth and do what he's called us to do. Unbelief, anger, escapism, they're three common responses to the condition of our world. But the problem with all three of these is that they actually serve to distract us and take the place of what we should be doing. And what should we be doing? We are called to be a people who, like the Apostle Paul, take action. I've quoted this before. I'll quote it many times. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was quoted as saying, Church, do something. Church, do something. Take action. When we see the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world, we should be provoked to action. See, we saw the Apostle Paul. He was provoked. And we saw that he didn't just get angry. He didn't cry out for God to bring judgment on the city. He didn't go around trying to smash every idol he saw. He proclaimed Jesus. He met them where they were at, and he simply did what he could do at that time. We should be asking ourselves, what am I doing and what can I do to make a difference in what I see around me? Am I provoked in one of these other ways or have I been provoked to taking action? See, I love Sunday mornings. I love gathering as a church. This is one of my favorite times of the entire week. I love being with all of you. I love it. Church services are so important. And I've said it time and time again that we should all strive to be together as much as we possibly can. That's biblical. The Bible tells us not to forsake assembling together. Sunday mornings are absolutely vital. But here's the thing. All of us gathering in this church this morning will not change the community in which we have been placed unless we take what happens here and we take it out there. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know there are things that we do here that make an impact. When we gather together and we pray, that certainly makes an impact. When we pray, God hears us. He does something. Something happens when we pray that otherwise would not have happened. 
And so I understand there are things that take place here that impact our community. But the fact of the matter is that this community and the surrounding region will be impacted in direct proportion to the willingness of God's people to take action during the other six days of the week. If we truly want to see Littlestown and the surrounding communities change, then we must take action. We need to get out there and we need to get our hands dirty. I want to encourage you to be bold. To be bold. What do you have to lose? To be bold, to take action. Don't miss the opportunities that God gives all of us during the week. Tell your family member, tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell that stranger what God is doing in your life. Be open to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to you. See, have you ever had that experience where you're sitting there and all of a sudden the Lord puts somebody into your mind? You ever had that? I think we all have many, many, many times. And you may sit there and you may think, well, that's odd. And what do we do sometimes? Well, sometimes we don't do anything. Sometimes we pray for them and that is really good. But I would encourage you, if that happens, and it probably happens to us all every single week, to ask the Holy Spirit why that person was placed on your mind. And then I encourage you to reach out to them, call them, or text them, and let them know that the Lord put them on your mind and see if there's anything they need. See, it could be that you are out and about, just going through your normal day, and the Lord just highlights a total stranger to you. Do you ever have that experience? You're sitting somewhere, and for whatever reason... You're at the coffee shop, and this person is just like highlighted to you. It's almost like there's a glow on them, and they're just highlighted to you. You don't understand why. I want to encourage you to take action. Walk humbly up to them and just say that sometimes you feel like God highlights people to you and ask them if there's anything you can pray with them about. Just be bold. Take action. They may let you pray for them. They may say yes. They may say no. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's going to leave an impression in their lives, and it might just add a link to their chain, bringing them closer to Christ. We are the ones that need to let people know that there is a God who loves them. As a church, we must continue to take action, and we must ask, what else can we do? See, can we increase what we currently do? Our support for New Hope, we support New Hope. It's an amazing ministry. And on that note, we have been tasked with getting yams and sweet potatoes for New Hope. All right? So I think they're looking for at least 125 cans. They're serving 225 families, which makes me wonder why they're not asking for 225. So Bethel, that is our assignment. We need to get 225 cans of yams to New Hope. You can bring them in, collect them, put them at the Welcome Center. They're collecting turkeys. You can give offerings, whatever you want to do. But can we continue to support that incredible outreach as they serve this community and make an impact? In our missions giving, can we increase what we're doing and just continue to send out people into this world to spread the gospel? We have the Good News Club that we support. They need volunteers. They need supplies. Can we support them even more? We have the Littlestown High School Bible Club. Can we be praying over those students? And can we come alongside of them and say, what do you need? There are so many things going on here that we can take action with to get the word out about Jesus and what he is doing. Invite some folks to events. Invite them to service. Then can we do something new? Have we stopped and just asked, what does this community need What are the needs of this community, and how can we as a church meet them? Now, we know Jesus is the main need, and we will continue to preach the gospel, and that will be the main aim, is to let people know that Jesus loves them. But what other ways can we serve our community to demonstrate the truth of God's love? Let me drop a seed here and see if this plants in anybody's heart. Over the last few months, there's been a couple of fires in Littlestown you've probably seen. There's been a couple of homes that have been burned down. And what you see on Facebook in the Littlestown and surrounding community page is everybody is just so hectic. What do we do for them? Well, they need clothing. No, they don't need clothing because they have nowhere to put it. Well, should we get them gift cards? Where should we get them gift cards to? What should we do? How can we help? Bethel, let me ask you a question. What if Bethel Assembly of God became the place that people turned to when there was an emergency in our community? And let me ask an even more pointed question. Why aren't we? 
Why isn't Bethel Assembly of God the place that this community immediately thinks of and turns to when there's an emergency that happens? We failed if we aren't shining that light. It should be that when something happens, they go, Bethel Assembly of God is here and can help us out. We could be the place that takes care of all of those things so that it's not just this sort of hodgepodge, what do I do, how do I help? We as the church should be here to help. Why not? All it takes is just a couple of people who have a heart for this community that can put that together and we can make it happen. What else can we be doing to serve our community? What else can we be doing? Here's the amazing thing when you have a new season at a church. It's very easy to birth new things. What we've done in the past is not what we always have to do in the future. And we should be bold in asking God for what else we can be doing. What else can we be doing? I challenge you, pray and ask the Lord, what else can we be doing to impact this community? If you have a heart for reaching this community, come talk to me. We can make these things happen. All of this is to look for opportunities to take care of people, to love on them the way that Jesus loves them in a very tangible way to show them that there is a God who loves them and wants to know them. Don't be shy if God puts something on your heart. You're allowed to dream big. Let me just say that again. I want you all to realize you are allowed to dream massive, huge, amazing dreams of what God can do through your life and through this church. We are not bound in any way because we serve an unlimited God. We should be looking for every opportunity to let people know about Jesus. Paul was provoked, and he identified opportunities to tell people about Christ. Paul knew the answer to the brokenness in Athens was the healing power of Jesus. He knew the answer to the darkness was the light of Jesus. He knew the answer to the sinfulness was the salvation of Jesus. The good news is that Jesus has an answer for all of the brokenness of the world. There is no one too far gone. There is no situation too far outside his reach. But we must be the ones who take him to our world and do something. And if the worship team wants to go ahead and come. Are we willing to be a people in a church who take action? One more verse today. Two verses here. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. This is the Apostle Paul writing. Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. I love the Apostle Paul. And it's verses like this that just sum it all up. The Apostle Paul writes here, oh yeah, there's a lot of people who oppose me. It's not going to be easy. It's not a cakewalk. It's not a walk in the park. There are many people who oppose me, but he says, I am not backing down. In fact, not only am I not backing down, I'm actually going to double down, and I'm going to stay here even longer because I see an effective door for ministry, and the opposition will never keep me from walking through it. We should never be discouraged by opposition. Because opposition sometimes is just an indicator that we are actually on the right track. All right, so when I was in high school, we would go to the Littlestown Carnival, me and my friends, and here was the trick. Don't listen to this part, honey. You would see the girls that you were interested in talking to, and you would notice which way they were walking, and then what would you do? You'd walk the opposite way. That way you'd have to bump into them a bunch of times and talk to them. Sorry, honey. (laughs) See, if we are moving in the will of God, we may just bump into the enemy sometimes. And here's the thing. If we never bump into the enemy, that's an indicator that you're probably moving in the same direction as him. But if we bump into the enemy... That means that we are going in the opposite way. And we should absolutely expect that when we serve the Lord and we're moving into him, that we may bump into some things sometimes. But let us not grow weary or intimidated in any way. But rather, let let us, Bethel, as a church, double down 
and say that we will continue and we will expand and we will do even more because there is a door of great ministry open to us. There's a wide open door of ministry open to us and to every single church because Jesus says that the harvest is ready, it's ripe. All it needs is the workers. So let us double down in this day. We live in the midst of a world with so much brokenness. But in that brokenness, we have the opportunity as individuals and as a church to find purpose and meaning in bringing the gospel of Jesus to it. Let us be a people of action, not simply hearers of the word, but what does the Bible say? Doers of the word. Doers of the word. Any area of brokenness is a place where the good news of the one who can heal all is needed. And in the brokenness, we can find the very purposes for which we are alive. When you look at the brokenness of the world, you should see in that brokenness the very purpose for which Christ still has you on this earth because you have a solution to that brokenness. And his name is Jesus. And his name is Jesus. We need to be those that advance the kingdom to see people's lives change and ultimately our communities impacted for Christ. So I ask you a question. What can you do this week to take action? You're going to learn as a pastor that I'm going to challenge you and encourage you to do something. Church, do something. And trust me, when I preach this, know that God has already placed this on my heart. Because as I put this sermon together, it was just that reminder of the Lord each and every day, Josh, what are you doing? What action are you taking? Church, let's do something. What can you do this week to take action? Step outside of your comfort zone this week. I encourage you. Step outside of that boat and see if you don't just walk on some water. All right, could I have just like... Um, Pastor Kevin and Remy and maybe a couple of other prayer folks, if you can just kind of come up over here. In the coming weeks here, we're going to get an altar worker team together here that every single week will call forward so that if you need prayer for anything, know that they're available. All right, so in the future here, we're going to have a team available every single week that if you're here and you need healing in your body, you feel like you've lost your relationship with Christ because you've walked away or maybe you've never come into a relationship, they are always going to be available to pray with you. So this team is here. If you are here today and you have any sickness in your body, you need to know Jesus, you need prayer for anything, I would encourage you to come up and get prayer for them in just a moment. But before we close today, what I want to do is I want to pray over you and I want to pray over us as a church that we would be a people who don't just coast through life, that we would be a people who don't respond out of unbelief or anger or escapism, but we would be a people who take action. If you can go ahead and stand to your feet. Here's what we're going to do in this time. Before I close in prayer, I would like you to just close your eyes. We're going to be a people of action. You ready? I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now to highlight one person to you that he wants you to pray over this week and he wants you to reach out to this week. And whomever he highlights to you in these moments, be bold and take action and reach out to them this week and let them know that the Lord had them on your heart, that you're praying for them and ask if there's anything that you can do for them. So right now, go ahead, just close yourself in with the Holy Spirit and just ask him to give you at least one name of somebody you can reach out to this week. heart. Just begin to pray over them this week. 
and then reach out to them, take action. Ready to double down, Bethel? Come on, are you ready to double down? Be a church that takes action to reach people and to reach our community. I'm all in. I hope you're all in with me. God has some amazing things for us in this place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this room today. How good it has been to be in the house of God. Lord, right now I pray for every person in this room. I pray for those that are at home watching online. I pray for those that will watch a recording of this later. I pray, Lord, that they would feel your presence and your peace resting upon them. Lord, I pray that they would just be baptized with the power of your spirit, that they would know you, and that you would fill them, Lord, with boldness. Lord, I pray over this church, over the people of this church. I pray over myself, Lord, that we would be bold ones for you. That we, Lord, as we are provoked, would take action to reach out to proclaim Jesus, to let people know that there is a God who loves them. Lord, I pray that in this church, you would raise up new ministries that will reach out into this community and meet the needs that people have. And that will give us an opportunity, Lord, to show them your love in real and tangible ways. Father, give us wisdom. Give us new ideas. Give us ideas of things that have never been done before, God. Show us what this community needs, Lord, and then raise people up in this church to lead it. Father, that we would be a church that takes action for you, that we would be a people who take action for you. We just love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you're doing, all that you've done. You are so awesome in every way, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.